morning. I don't think anybody showed, you, would you show up late today with the spring forward? I don't know how that works. Yeah, nobody showed up late. Good job. Paid attention. At the uh, church I used to serve at at Michigan, like the, the pulpit overlooked kind of into the parking lot, and it cast shadows when cars drove by onto the back behind the pulpit. And so on this day, you'd always see a shadow pass right at like 11 o'clock, and then just quickly turn around and just go home. <laughs> they didn't want to walk in. They took the best and the brightest. That's what Babylon did. The wise, the learned, the leaders. They'd be carried off into exile away from their home, their traditions, their families, their culture, their gods. That's what Nebuchadnezzar would do. They wouldn't just capture a people. They captured a culture. And they worked to erase it. And this is what they were doing to God's people. Twice, the Babylonians had raided Jerusalem in 605 B.C. and 598 B.C. In 598, the, the final exile, they dragged off King Jeconiah, the leaders, the elders, the prophets, the priests, the skilled workers, the artisans, the culture makers, the culture leaders, the culture keepers. And they were taken to Babylon and forcibly transformed into Babylonians. And this is what made Babylon the most powerful nation on earth in their time. This is what brought terror into the hearts of their enemies. The Babylonians were not simply interested in destroying you as a people. They didn't want to just beat you in war. They would destroy your culture. They would destroy the soul of your nation, the very identity, who you were. But God's people had faced this sort of thing before. The main identity of God's people was people who had been rescued time and time again. Their God rescued them, defeating the most powerful. As we've been reading through on Sunday mornings in the book of Exodus, it started with Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth. Pharaoh had enslaved God's people. And God makes Pharaoh look like nothing, easily defeating him and freeing his people and marking that as a, a cultural identity of who it was to be God's people, people that were freed. Uh, the freedom from, from Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, is, is mentioned over and over and again in the Old Testament as a marker of, of who God's people are. I am the God who freed you from Egypt. So, and they would do X, Y, Z. That was a marker of who God's people were. They were people who were rescued. They were a people whose God would come and save them over and over again. So surely, he would do it again. God took down the powerful Egyptians. These Babylonians were nothing to him. Some claimed, as we heard in our passage, to prophesy that, don't worry, God's coming soon, and these Babylonians are going to get what they want, get what they deserve. Salvation was coming, they said. The Babylonians' days were numbered. God would come and come quickly, and justice would once again be served. And they would leave this forsaken land and return to the promised land with their God once again rescuing them. But then this letter comes from Jeremiah, carried by Elasa and Jeremiah, and it contained some sobering news for God's people. 
This morning is the eighth and final week of our sermon series on what we at Christ our Redeemer call our four G's. Grace, grow, groups, and go. And these four G's define who we are. They tell the story of who we are as Christ our Redeemer and who we believe God has called us to be in this specific valley. As you walk in each Sunday morning on the pillars, they are listed there as a reminder. Hey, this is what it means to be this specific uh, body of Christ and what we want to do here and what we believe God's called us to. And it helps us tell the story of what God's doing in and through us and what we look forward to in the future. It all starts with grace. God has freely given us salvation. We've sinned. We've blown it. We've messed up over and over again. And God has shown us grace. He has forgiven us. Something that we did not deserve and we certainly did not earn. But he has freely given us because he loves us. He has brought us into his family through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. So now we can be with him for now and forever and for always. God has shown us grace. He has lavished us with grace. We will never run out of grace. His supply is endless. And grace is what we as followers of Jesus, want to live our lives in response to. And so in response to grace, to God's great love, we as a church, we want to grow. We don't want to be stuck where we were when God first rescued us. We want to grow into who God created us to be. We want to learn from his scriptures. We want to be, look more like Jesus uh, in, our, in the world around us. We want to grow, continue to grow in faith. God's not done with us yet, thank goodness, but he has more for us. We want to grow in the love and knowledge of our God. Grow in our uh, realize, realizing how much we need that grace and that love and how much God has for us as we follow him. And we get to do this in community, what we call groups here at Christ our Redeemer. We're not created to go it alone. We were never meant to. And we try over and over again and we fail over and over again at trying to go it alone. But God has put us in his family. A family that doesn't always get along, that has messes like any family, that looks very different from one another. But God has brought us together, people who are very different, and our only commonality is Jesus. And now we get to be at his table, and we get to be a part of God's family and the family business of sharing his good news and his love with the world. And finally, we go. In response to God's great love for us as an act of worship, we go telling and showing others the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bryce taught us last week, as we looked at Go for the first time, that that our going is to be radically God-centered. We're not leaving God behind. And in fact, it's, it's more likely we are meeting God as we go. We are seeing him as we go out and we tell people about Jesus, as we love people, as we care for people. God's ahead of us, and we join him in bringing about his kingdom. And the goal of our going is worship. We want others to worship our God, to find life, hope, and salvation in him. And as we go, we need God to be with us. We're fully dependent on him. We can't do that on our own. But we need him to go ahead of us. We need him to go with us as we go to love the world that God's put us in. Our going is worship to him. And we want to bring others into this worship as well. We want them to experience that grace, that love, that incredible family of God. We want them to experience that as well. This morning we're going to talk more about go. In the core we say go 
is our radical orientation. We are compelled by God's love, by God's grace to go. We need to live our lives in such a way that the gospel permeates all that we say and do. And go isn't just for like a select few, those who feel a call to overseas missionary, mission work or those who enter into the full-time ministry. God certainly calls people to different parts of the world, and God certainly calls people to full-time ministry, but go is for everybody. Uh, we are called to go. And for most of us in this room, that means that, that we need to go where we are. We don't have to cross an ocean. We don't have to go to a different continent or even a different part of our country, but we can go where God has put us. Our call to go is not so much about location, but it's about the means in which we spend our life and the attitude with which we live our day to day. We want to go and share that grace, that love with everybody that we come in contact with. You don't have to be called to a foreign country. God's calling you to go where you are. God's calling you to live out the gospel in response to God's great love and grace wherever you find yourself. Where you live, where you grocery shop, where you work, where you spend your life. God has put you where you are on purpose. You didn't accidentally end up there. He knows that you're there. He's put you in a situation where you can show others his love. And he's going to work through our situations, wherever they are, to show his grace, to show his mercy, to draw people into his family. And this was his message to the exiles that Jeremiah wrote to, and it's his message to us today. God sent this letter through Jeremiah, and he speaks to his people who had been dragged off in the exile. And again, they had been waiting for God to come and bring the hammer on the Babylonians. They were waiting to be rescued again, and surely that was going to happen any day now. They were in this foreign land with a different culture, different gods, and they were ready to go home. These Babylonians were heathens, enemies, deserving of God's wrath. So God's people looked forward to God's reckoning. They were probably counting down the days. But God had other plans in mind. God's people had disobeyed God, and their consequence was exile. God was using the Babylonians to, to teach his people by dragging them off into exile. And now God was telling them to engage Babylon, to invest in it, and to make it better. Because he was there, because he was their God, they were not to take their consequences for their sin like a child in timeout, sitting quietly until it was over. Instead, God called his people to engage and enrich their enemy's culture. So through Jeremiah, God says in verse 5 of our passage, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. These people are in exile. It'd be natural to kind of hold back, to not invest, uh, but to wait for rescue. You're not going to live life normally, right? Because any day now, uh, you're going to have to move back home. So let's just wait, save our energy until we get back home. But God calls them to invest and engage in Babylon, where they were right now, to build homes and settle down, plant gardens and eat their fruit. They're going to be there for a while, is what God's saying. Do life, get married, have kids, raise them, marry them off, enjoy your grandkids. The call from God was not to keep themselves fully from the world around them, to, to protect themselves. Uh, no, instead it was to engage, to set up shop. You're going to be there for a bit. So let's make this place better. 
let's make this place look a little bit more like God's kingdom. This wasn't their homeland. This wasn't the promised land, but God wanted them to make it their home. God's people were to give themselves to where they were and live out their life fully, even though they were in exile, even though God promises he is going to return them home. And we, as God's people, we know that this is not our home. Our home is God's kingdom, that reality he's bringing one day where there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears, but we will be with God, and God will be with us for all time, just as it was always meant to be. But until that day comes, we, like God's people so many years ago, we're called to invest and engage in the world around us. God has put us where we are on purpose, and he plans to work through us to show his love to the world around us. Now, this doesn't mean we have to keep ourselves in abusive or toxic, toxic situations. We have freedom to leave. And God calls us to better, to pursue health for ourselves and for those around us. But it does mean that God is present with us in whatever situation we find ourselves. And he's working to show his love and his gospel. We live in a culture that's very different and has very different values than what God calls us to. Much of what our culture represents is antithetical to the gospel. And yet God has placed us here on purpose and intends for us to share his gospel, his love, his grace, where we are. God calls us to go wherever we may be, to invest, to engage, to show up, and to live out his love. It's easy to want to pull back. Just like I'm sure God's people had that temptation to pull back. This isn't where we belong. This isn't what we're looking forward to huddle together, protect ourselves, stay clean, right? But that's not what God says. God comes in and gets his hands dirty and invites us to do the same. So what might this look like? Because it doesn't have to be planting gardens, which is good news for my family because we plant gardens and then forget they, we planted them and the, the squirrels, I think, like it. Um, so one of my best friends growing up was named Thomas and his parents, especially his mom, lived out this idea of going where she was. Mrs. Welch loved her son's friends, and, and she put up with us, our goofiness and tolerated our ridiculous ideas. We were a group of boys that got together, and uh, if you have boys, you know what that's like. And, you know, the, there were a lot of broken things in that house, uh, uh, and it resulted mostly in me breaking something or putting a hole in something. And the, the Welches, they loved me anyways. In fact, they started just every time there was a hole in the wall, they would just write the name of the person who did it right next to the hole. And so my name was all over their house because I was a bigger kid who took 25 years to grow into my body. And so I was a little clumsy. And so there were broken uh, walls and chairs and side view mirrors and probably more that I've forgotten. But if I called her, she would tell me. Um, well, it just continued to have us over, over and over again. We'd go there every morning before middle school, before we walked to middle school, and just hang out. And we walked to middle school. We'd come back. We'd hang out there for longer. Uh, they drove us all over town to whatever sporting event we were participating in. They prayed for us. They took us to youth group. They took us to Young Life. I, I got to know our families. And, and this continued out. This started uh, in middle elementary school. It continued out through high school. In high school, I had a tendency not to hear my alarm as it went off in the morning. And my mom left the house at 5.30 in the morning to, to drive to work in Northern Virginia traffic. So she was, and she was in Maryland. She couldn't give me a ride. And so in this rush of kind of adrenaline and, and grogginess, I would call Mrs. Welch 
and she'd come give me a ride to school. And it got to the point where I would call, and she'd pick up, and I'd say, hi, Mrs. Welch, it's Austin. And she'd just say, I'll be right over. And, and that's what she did. She loved me. And it was a pain, I'm sure, to drive some other kid to school, but she did it. And she was never rude about it. And she just always enjoyed our time together on the way to school. The Welches were living out the Christian life in our neighborhood. Uh, they didn't have a garden, and if they did, all those boys at our house would have trampled it anyways. But they invested in me and my friends, and they showed us the love of Jesus. They invested and engaged in the world God had put them in, in the neighborhood God had placed them. They showed what it was to be a part of God's family. And they're one of the main reasons that I saw Jesus, that my mom and my sister saw Jesus and have joined his family as well. The Welches made Jesus known through their words and actions by loving and sometimes just tolerating a group of boys that were goofy and problematic and everything boys are. Another example, my senior year in high school, I took a creative writing class taught by a woman named Dr. Giroux. And it was my favorite class, and she was one of my favorite teachers of all time. She loved writing. She loved creativity, and she loved high schoolers. And she gave us space to write bad poetry and to tell stories and to grow as writers. But more than that, I would sit at her desk and talk through life and, and wrestle through my teenage angst and, and talk about the world and faith and whatever else, most of the time just to get out of writing. And she loved me anyways. She laughed with us. She took us seriously, and she cared for us deeply. She helped me grow as a writer, but more than that, she helped me grow up. And upon my graduation, my mom had collected these letters from different individuals in my life, uh, uncles and aunts and, and relatives and, and friends, and, and she got Dr. Giroux to write me a letter as I went off to college. And, and in that letter, she told me about her faith and how she prayed for me, and she was so grateful for me. And she, she quoted scripture to me. And it blew my mind that, oh my gosh, Jesus, you're even in this creative writing class. It's incredible. Dr. Jarrell used her gifts and her skills that God had given her to love high schoolers for Jesus. She was where God had put her. She was going where she was. And she invested and engaged for him there. And she made a difference in my life and the life of others. She showed the love of Jesus to me, to my classmates, and countless others. Now, she taught writing. She taught English. God calls us to go, but it doesn't mean that we have to move across the world. God tells us to go where we are. Where you are today is, is no surprise to God. He is fully aware. And he's put you in that situation. He's put your neighbors next to you on purpose. He's put your coworkers, even the annoying ones, down the hall from you on purpose that you can go where you are to fully engage in what I think is our glorious mundane lives, the day-to-day, -day, the, the drinking coffee with somebody, the uh, sitting down and just hanging out in your front yard as the kids run down the street, the being at the high school soccer game or football game and just sitting with the same people every week. God calls us to invest, engage where we are for his gospel. God calls us to go where we live our lives. God has put you in the lives of so many others so that they may see his love and grace. You may be the only Jesus that somebody sees. And that, in some ways, is a very humbling and terrifying thought. 
in some ways, it's exciting to know that God's at work. Even at, at my little house, on my little block, God cares about me and those people there. So think about who is in your life. Who has God put in your life? They're not there by accident. It could be a neighbor or a coworker, uh, uh, someone you teach, someone you keep running to at the coffee shop. God has put them there on purpose. And he's calling you to go where you are. God has given you talents and skills and interests and passions, and he intends for you to pursue those, to use those to show his love to others, to worship him, to share his love and grace with those around you. Go where you are with the gifts and talents you have to worship the God that loves us and that we love in response. God calls his people to invest and engage in Babylon, to do life, plant gardens, have children, marry those kids off, settle down, invest in the world God's put them in. But more than that, God calls his people to seek the peace of the city. And, and the word translate, translated in, as peace is a much broader word than just kind of the absence of conflict. It's the word shalom. You may have heard it before. Um, and Hebrew has, is a beautiful language that has a lot less words than we do. And so a word has about a paragraph of meaning sometimes. And shalom is, is one of those words. Uh, a piece starts to capture what he's talking about, but not fully. Shalom means wholeness, welfare, completeness. Shalom is all-encompassing. So God, through Jeremiah, calls his people to seek the welfare, the wholeness, the shalom, of Babylon, the goodness for their enemies, shalom for those who had dragged them off into exile, peace for those who had gone out of their way to destroy God's culture and everything his people were about. They were supposed to pray for this place, this place that they hate, this place they couldn't wait to leave, this place that hated them, pray that it prospers. This is way more than building houses. This is a lot harder than planting gardens. Could God really be asking his people to work for the betterment of those people? The wholeness, the prosperity, the shalom of those who hate him, who hate them? Seeking the peace of the city means working for wholeness of Babylon, that they may prosper and experience the love, justice, and righteousness of God in every part of their life. God loved the Babylonians, and he wanted them to experience him. God's calling his people to seek the good for their enemy, to live in such a way that the Babylonians are better for it, to work for the good of all people, not because they've earned it, not because they deserve it, but because God loves, to seek justice and peace, to put effort into changing the everyday life of the Babylonians, the enemy, the heathen, to make their lives better. We have a toilet in our house that often backs up, and I realize it's a very rough transition, so I apologize, but um, <laughs> there's no good transition in that story, um, and that may be too much information, if it is, I apologize, but, but frankly, frequently, once or twice a week, we, we have to break out the plunger and, and to get it flowing properly again, and lately, I've started to think uh, it may not just be an us problem, right, but a, a problem with the pipes, it's one thing to, to fix the presenting problem. Our, our toilet's plugged, so we better plunge it. That fixes the problem momentarily. 
But it's a whole other thing to ask why. Because I'm tired of breaking out the plunger. Why is this happening? And what could fix it? And so instead of, of fixing the symptoms, the, the one-off problem, or in our case, the couple times a week problem, it's asking a deeper question of what causes this and what can change it. It, it may take more than a plunger to solve that problem. But if that why question gets answered, then I'm not having to break my plunger out two, three times a week. Imagine for a moment that you live by a river and it's this beautiful view and you're excited to enjoy nature, sit on your porch, drink a cup of ta- coffee or, or tea, and just enjoy what's around you. Hear the, the water rushing over the rocks. Experience the birds as they fly over. Maybe hear a fish jump every once in a while. But one day you, you notice something in the water thrashing around. You go check it out and it's a man who's drowning. And you jump in you rescue him. And so you're obviously shooken up by this, but you're grateful that you were there to rescue them. But, you know, eventually you go back to your life, back to your porch, back to your coffee. But then a couple weeks later, the same scene happens. A man again is thrashing around, and, and, and you need to rescue them. It happens again a few days later, and it's a woman this time. And then a few days later after that, and, and it's a child. And at some point, it makes sense to keep rescuing there but to go upstream and say, what in the world is happening that all these people are coming into the river? You can keep doing what you're doing, or you can go see if you can keep them out in the first place. And that's kind of what seeking the peace, the shalom of your area looks like. It's seeking wholeness and welfare for those who are around you. It's asking why and figuring out, can we participate in solving a bigger problem? God called his people 2,500 years ago, and he calls us today to seek the peace of the city, to work for wholeness and justice and the welfare of where he has put us. And this isn't our home. Our home is God's kingdom. But we wait for his kingdom to be established for all time. We live out his kingdom values now. We live into the reality that he has for us. And we want to live in such a way that, that the Lord's prayer is echoed through our words and actions. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may our lives make God's kingdom more evident to our neighbors. May it create a a thirst, a hunger for what God has for us, for what he's promised us. May our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors, may they see the love of God and the reality of his kingdom and the way that we live. So what might this look like? Where can you ask why? And where will that question lead you? I'm going to be honest with you, if you faithfully ask why, it's going to lead you into hard and heartbreaking situations. You may feel overwhelmed, like you were thrown into the deep end. But God is already there, and he will meet you there. And he will work through you there. And he will do amazing things in and around you. We are surrounded by issues worth asking why about. Our neighbors, people God loves, are being hammered every day, and God is asking us, his people, to seek shalom for them, to live for their wellness, their welfare, for justice for them. So what might this look like today? The city of Roanoke has the second highest foster care population in the uh, the state. Though if you Google the top 10 population areas in Virginia, Roanoke doesn't come close to the top 10. Why is that? Why are there so many kids in foster care? What can we do about it? 
What can we as a church do about it? Many of us know the opioid epidemic has wreaked havoc on our area of the country. We've lost so many people to to drugs prescribed by doctors, destroyed families, has ruined lives. So many families have been shattered by addiction, and too many people who God loves are killing themselves because they're addicted to these pills. Why is this? What can you, what can the church do about it? Roanoke has a rising rate of gun violence, especially affecting our young people. Why? What can be done? Fatherlessness leaves so many young boys and girls vulnerable in our community. What causes this? What might God have for us as we pursue it? These issues don't even begin to cover the broken systems that hurt people in our area. And this isn't to beat our area down. I love Roanoke. It is an incredible city with so many amenities and so many beautiful things. But there are so many people who are hurting. And there are so many things that are functioning uh, in a less than state than what God has for them. And the good news is, this is no surprise to God. God is fully aware of what's going on. And God's already at work. We don't have to look at an issue and think, I, I don't even know where to start. It's completely overwhelming. But we can participate in what God's already doing. We can participate in what God's people are already doing and join in. People who know more than we do, who've experienced it more than we have, who have some answers, and we can walk alongside them to start seeing what God's doing. Take foster care, for example. There's so many ministries that help support foster parents, that help support uh, children in foster care. There's a, a ministry called Care Portal that helps keep kids out of foster care. It finds vulnerable families, and it supports them and gives them the tools they need, surrounds them with a community to, to love them, to share Jesus with them, and to keep their kids from being removed. And there's hundreds of things like that. And all of those issues are listed and more. Where we can participate with what God's doing. We can seek the peace of Roanoke, the shalom of Roanoke. We can go where we are and meet God and figure out what he's doing and participate in it. Asking why and what can we do brings us in line with what God is already doing through others. When we join in this hard, difficult, heartbreaking work, we come to understand more of who our God is and how big his love is for us. So the church, we feel uh, one of our identity markers is to go. We want to send those who are called around the world to, uh, to tell others about Jesus. We want to support missionaries. We want to support those who are doing work in this country and around the world. We also want to go where we are. We want to love our neighbors because God love our, loves our neighbors And we're God's family. We want to love who God loves. We want to seek the shalom of our city because when we do that, we get a small picture of what life will be like fully in God's kingdom. And we're called to seek the peace of the city, not to make it happen, but to strive to make it happen. We live in a broken world. We won't solve all these issues. Many of these issues leave us in a place where we have to fully depend on God because they are so big and so difficult. But we are called to seek that peace, to work for the better, for the wholeness, for the justice of where God has put us. As God's people, we want to love what our God loves. And our God loves Roanoke. 
and he wants what's best for their people. And that's life with God. So may our words and actions be infused with the love of God. May people see Jesus, albeit imperfectly, in us. May we be a church that makes a difference on our block, in our neighborhood, in our city. May we go where we are and find God already at work there. And may we be overwhelmed by his grace and his love as we follow him and loving those that he loves and loving those that he's put in our life. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you, you are ahead of us. You already are loving these folks in this city, in our neighborhoods, at our work. And God, you invite us to love them too. As we go this week, give us eyes to see who is around us and what you're doing in their life. Give us courage to ask difficult questions when necessary. Encourage to pursue wholeness, shalom in this city. May we be a people who go where we are. May we be a people who seek the peace of the city. And God, as we meet you, as we go, God, continue to, to teach us and to grow us into more of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.